Welcome again to our new series called uh, Finding Daylight, and here I am in Rock-A-Laka Cave, you know, and uh, that's because our, our stage is set for VBS, which is called Cave Quest. It's going to begin tomorrow. It's going to be rocking in here with a lot of young people, and um, their lives are going to be changed, and their families' lives are going to be changed. I'm so proud of our church and, and what we do in so many different ways. Uh, this is just another, another opportunity for us. I wonder if you've ever been in a cave. I mean, have you ever stopped and done one of those tourist things? Uh, I see they just opened up, opened up Merrimack Caverns again uh, recently. And, and uh, we did that, I remember, when our kids were pretty young. We stopped in Kentucky somewhere. I don't remember where. But uh, have you done that? Have you been in a cave through a, a tour? And I don't know if they still do this, but in the cave that we visited, we got way back down in the earth somewhere, and then the guide turned out all the lights. Do that to you? It's like you can feel the darkness. I mean, it's like unsettling darkness to be that deep in the earth and not see any light, no light at all. And boy, what a relief when you can come back out into the daylight. There's something ominous about darkness. We feel less secure, less courageous, less confident in the darkness. In, in fact, just recently, uh, my wife and I relocated. Uh, we've, through a process, intentional process, we've been building equity in homes over the years, and, and we finally uh, are done with that. Pray to God, done with that, and uh, sold our last house and, and bought another home uh, locally here, and, and some good friends came and helped and all that. But uh, I was studying late in my office the other night, new house, and, and uh, turn out the lights, and uh, was going to find my way into a, a new uh, bedroom that I haven't, you know, used and, and not familiar with, and, and walked straight into a door, you know, because it was dark. <laughs> <laughs> didn't think about that door being there. I absolutely got a black eye out of it, you know, because, you know, we're not used to moving in the darkness. Darkness is dangerous. Uh, thieves prefer the darkness. Muggers wait in the shadows. Most predatory animals do their hunting in the darkness. We're not meant for the dark. When someone is out of touch in life, we say they are in the dark. Now, I don't want to talk about literal darkness so much here. I want to talk about finding daylight over the darkness that you find in your life. It's not going to be pleasant, but it's going to be real and it's going to be important. The things you don't like about yourself. I mean, it may be a gross, immoral thing that you're a part of or have been a part of, a skeleton in your closet. It may not. It may just be something that keeps popping up, something you don't like about yourself. You know, maybe it's a, a tendency to exaggerate the truth and, and even outright lie, or you get drawn into gossip, or you have a quick fuse, or you're an impatient person, and you resolve and you resolve that it's going to be different, you're going to change that, and you just can't find yourself towards daylight. Some skeleton, something that haunts you, something that keeps you locked up in a prison of your own making, and you feel powerless over it. I, I pray that this series, Finding Daylight, will help you move out of the darkness into the light. In fact, it could be argued that this is the total reason or, or the best metaphor for why Christ came into the world. Uh, the issue of darkness and light is popular throughout the scripture, not only the Old Testament. He speaks about those who are sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death. And Christ was going to come to bring light to those people. And then when John, 
in his opening chapters of his gospel, speaks about the birth of Jesus, not in a literal narrative way like Luke does, but in his own philosophical way, he uses that metaphor as well. In fact, he said about Jesus, in him, namely Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines out into our darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome this light. We had a baptism last night, and it was, it was a sweet little child, and, and we present a candle, and it's, it's just a symbol, something we do, and, and I, I just love the symbolism of that. You know, it's just a small little flicker of a flame, but no matter how grand the building, no matter how dark the building, if you light even a little flicker of a flame, it can be seen from everywhere. Light is powerful no matter how small. In fact, I love the way Zechariah, the old man who with Elizabeth had not had any children and who was visited before Jesus was born and told he was going to have a miraculous child. He was going to conceive a child in his own age only by the miracle of God. And when that child was finally born, John the Baptist, who would be the forerunner uh, to prepare the people for the coming of Jesus, that child was born. Can you imagine Zechariah? If I put myself in his place, I'm an old man. My wife has just given me my first child. It's a boy. I would have just been, you know, overwhelmed with praise for this life and, and for God who had been so good to me. But when Zechariah praised God for that event, it's one of the most beautiful scriptures. We don't often read it because we're so busy with the birth of Jesus. Uh, he praised God not for his son, but for the significance of his son's birth. Here's how he said it. And you, my child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Well, if anybody questions how one is saved, it doesn't get any clearer than that passage. The knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, not through penance, not through making up for wrong, not being better than bad, not being better than most. The knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. And listen, because of the tender mercies of our God, because of who God is, that's why he's done it, by which the rising sun, daylight, the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those who are living in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet to a pathway of peace. Christ has come. We have that peace. We have that light. But the devil knows how to keep the darkness alive in our life, to cause us doubt, to cause us to focus on our weaknesses rather than God's strength. Jesus talked about that in the Sermon on the Mount, and here's how he described it. He said, if the light within you is darkness... How great is that darkness? That darkness blots out the good news of Jesus for you. And that's not what God wants for you. God wants you to find daylight. He wants you to come out of that darkness into his marvelous light. It helps if we understand a little bit about the nature of darkness and, and how it came into the world to begin with. And so we're going to dial it back. And we don't have the TV out here today, so I'm going to just read it to you uh, from Genesis uh, chapter 2 and then chapter 3, how sin and how darkness first came into the world. Now you might say, well, why did God create people to sin? Well, think about the alternative. If God made us so that we did not have free will, if God made us purely to be obedient, uh, there would be no relationship in that kind of uh, connection 
there would be no decision on our part, no uh, relationship of love. It would simply be a programmed uh, condition uh, that we would find ourselves in. You know, if, if your children had no choice but to obey, if your children obeyed only out of fear, where would the joy be in that? The joy comes when our children or when we obey or express our relationship, our love for our parents because of gratitude, because of a feeling of appreciation for all that they have done, because we love them and we know that we are loved by them. That's the relationship God wanted, so he created free will. So that this would be something that we could choose to do. But when you have choice, you can also choose wrong, and that's what Adam and Eve did. Let me talk to you a little bit or read a passage about the conditions in the world before darkness came and then how it changed. Before darkness, at the end of chapter 2 in the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, it says, And the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. There was no, great, there was no guilt, there was no regret, there was no shame. They felt no shame. They were completely transparent, completely vulnerable, completely exposed to each other, and, and uh, they felt nothing except joy because there was no sin to make them feel guilty about who they were or how they looked. It was just pure joy. The way it will be when we finally find ourselves in a place without sin again in heaven's home, which is why Christ is bringing us back to that condition. But that condition didn't last. You know, Satan came into their garden and tempted Eve uh, to be disobedient. God gave only one command, the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And here's how the story continues in chapter 3, beginning at verse 6. When the woman saw the fruit of that tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for being like God. You know, Satan says, he doesn't want you to eat it because then you'll just be like him. You know, so that, that desire, uh, that jealousy of God's power and a desire to have it for themselves, that greed to be more than God intended... She took some and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he also ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they felt guilt, they felt shame, they felt regret for the disobedience that they had committed. And they realized they were naked, they were exposed. And so they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. We're gonna talk about this a little bit more but you know, when you think about regret, when you think about guilt, there are only two choices you have. You can either cover up or you can come clean. And we know the tendency is to rationalize, to explain, you know, to, uh, to excuse uh, behavior, to cover up. Politicians do it all the time, but let's not lay it on the politicians. You know, we are guilty of the same. And so they sewed these fig leaves together. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, as he was apt to do. And they hid from God among the trees. When the Lord called to the man, where are you? He said, uh, well, I, I, I heard you in the garden and, and I was fearful because I was naked and so I hid. You know, I was exposed and my disobedience became obvious to me and I felt some guilt. And he said, who told you that you we were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? And this is where the cover-up begins. The man said, the woman that you gave to me, you know, not just blaming Eve, but, you know, Lord, you're kind of guilty. You poisoned my world here. You put this woman in my life. She gave it to me, and I ate it. And the Lord turned to Eve and said, what have you done? And she said, well, the, the serpent, 
he deceived me. And I ate. You know, we'd like to blame Adam and Eve, and we're no better than Adam blaming Eve and Eve blaming the Satan. We'd like to blame those two. But the Bible says this is a greater issue than just those two people because we would have done no better given the same opportunity. In fact, the Bible declares, uh, saying, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks only God. All of us have turned away. You know, all of us are prone to sin. Well, today is Father's Day. And, and I got to tell you that uh, as a pastor, there's a special burden that's placed on, on pastors. Pastor Garrett will confirm as well that when you become a, a pastor, there's a great concern to be a good father, to be a good husband, and also to be a good father. These things are often in conflict with each other. You know, you live in a glass house. People watch you, observe you, and, and you feel that. And, and then there's also the competition for attention. You know, when a lot of families have their weekends to spend with their kids, we're often very busy conducting weddings, you know, conducting funerals or prepping for services that we're going to conduct. And uh, uh, it can often be a conflict, often difficult for us to manage the balance. In fact, there was one occasion when uh, I was a pastor in Texas and my wife had just had surgery. And and this is another issue for pastors that they struggle with is because, you know, people want to love you and want to care for you. and, And that's awesome on your part. And I know that's true. But we often keep our trauma private because if we don't, we're inundated with 100 people who want to care for us, a couple hundred people who want to care for us. And, and you begin to manage all those relationships that you can't really pay attention to the thing before you. So if your family's in surgery, sometimes you don't tell anybody except maybe a few close friends. And it was kind of like that for us. I was a pastor, a lone pastor in that situation. And, uh, and, and so we kind of kept it to ourselves. My wife was having surgery. And, and at the same time, I got a phone call. And, and uh, there was somebody else who had just been brought into the hospital with a heart attack and was near death. And they wanted to know if I could come. And, and fortunately, it was a small town. It was the same hospital. So my wife went into surgery. And I was there with her, prayed with her. And then I left her. And I went down to be with the other family who was dealing with a trauma that I felt was more serious than the trauma that we were dealing with. And so when my wife came out of anesthesia, her husband was nowhere to be found. <laughs> she goes, where were you? Getting coffee? <laughs> you know, no, no, no. The situation developed. You know, and so, you, you know, when you want to be there and you want to be supportive, you can't always. There's just constant competition, uh, you know, to be at a birthday party, to be at an event in your family when also you have very serious issues uh, that are calling for your attention. And, and the biblical track record is no better. You know, when, when you look at the PKs in the Bible, uh, it's not a pretty picture. Do you remember the story of Samuel? You know, uh, his mother, Hannah, prayed uh, for a child and prayed and prayed for a child. Uh, and uh, God finally opened her womb and gave her this child. He gave her more children after Samuel was born. But she was so blessed to receive this child that she dedicated this child in service to the priest in the temple. And when he was of an age, she brought Samuel to Eli, the priest, and, and she says, I'm going to give him as a servant in the temple because God gave him to me. And you remember the story. Samuel was laying down. He was just a young boy and he was sleeping and he heard a voice, Samuel, Samuel. And so I ran to Eli, the old man, and he said, what do you want, master? I'm here to serve. And he said, I I didn't call you. Go back to bed. And this happened a number of times. And then Eli determined that God was speaking to him. And he said, the next time you hear that voice, just say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And so Samuel did that. Young boy said, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And God spoke to Samuel as a young boy. And he says, "Uh, 
Eli's kids are awful. You know, PKs are awful, Samuel. And uh, he said, I, I don't want them to lead my people, you know, after Eli dies. I'm choosing you as the new man to lead my people. And the next day, when they got up, Eli came and said, what did God say to you? He says, oh, nothing. He goes, no, I think he might have said something to you. And, and worse be it on you if you don't tell me the truth. And so he told him the truth. He said, your sons are awful. And God has chosen me to replace them uh, to lead the people. Now, you would have thought, the reason I told you the story, is you would have thought that Samuel would have learned something about being a father, right? But in fact, Samuel raised awful kids too. They were unfit for leadership when Samuel died. How does that happen? You know, so that God gave them their first king. And then look at David, the great man that David was, fighting Goliath and leading God's people and gathering all the supplies, you know, for Solomon to build the temple. And yet, David was an awful father. His kids committed murder among themselves and and, uh, one child by one wife raped a child by another wife. You know, just a travesty of a family. And, And it's true, even as we examine pastor's kids, you know, that we know as we look around the country. In fact, when I was a kid, I won't mention the name, but uh, my pastor that I knew and who confirmed me, uh, it was a small town of only about 10,000 people, and they had a local paper, and I don't know if you grew up in a town like that, but they had a page that was called the police blotter, you know, where they recorded arrests. You know, I don't care what you did, you know, your name was going to appear in the paper. If your dog bit somebody, it was going to be in the paper. And, and this pastor's kid was in the paper all the time. You know, and I thought, wow, I don't want to be that guy. And, and so I dedicated myself to be the best father I could be, uh, even though I was in ministry. And, and, and uh, you know, we, we took our kids, uh, got very involved with them. This is a picture of uh, when we went on the Boundary Waters canoeing adventure with them. You know, I did as much as I could with them. Uh, I, I got involved in their sports activities. And no matter how busy I was, if I didn't get my sermon done by Saturday morning, I said, I don't care. God's going to give this to me. And I'm going to spend my Saturday with my kids as much as I can, unless there's an emergency. I'm going to dedicate my kid self to my kids but even then I didn't do it so well I remember when uh, they were in high school and my youngest son Jacob was on the freshman basketball team and Josh was uh, a junior but he was already starting varsity and so we would go to the freshman game and there would be an intermission and then we'd stay for the varsity game and uh, I remember uh, it was a big game and, and the school they attended was totally basketball dedicated. Place was packed, you couldn't walk. And at halftime in the varsity game where my son was playing, I had to walk through the crowd, excuse me, excuse me, you know, because people were sitting on the steps. And uh, another pastor whose son was a friend of my son uh, was also starting on the team. Uh, Pastor Karsten from Eureka, and uh, the place was crowded and packed, and people were shouting and carrying on, and he yelled at me, Howard! The place got immediately quiet. I'm the only one standing up. He says, where do you think you're going? I said, well, I have an elders meeting. And Pastor Karsten said, you're going to have elders meetings the rest of your life. Your son's going to play basketball for two years. Get a grip. Thanks, Dar. (laughs) So I went to my elders meeting and I told my elders what had happened. And I said, so if my son's ever playing ball again, I have a meeting, elders meeting, I don't care what it is, I'm not going to be here. They actually applauded me. (laughs) It was more my problem than their problem, more my darkness than theirs. You know, it's just the way they felt about it. God has a way of messing with you, though. That very year, come Ash Wednesday, it was Ash Wednesday, a day you don't miss. 
And uh, my son was playing in a district championship game, you know, down in Ironton. And so I was driving to a basketball game on Ash Wednesday while my church was gathered for worship. (laughs) And I said, it's okay, Steve, it's okay, it's going to be okay. But there are things that I'm not proud of. You know, there's some darkness in my life. There are regrets that I have as well. In fact, we were just out to uh, Boise where my oldest son is now a pastor. And my wife suggested that I would make an aggravation game for them. Because our kids, we grew up, we played a lot of board games. And, you know, it's cheap entertainment and kids love it. And and so I got the kids involved and we cut the board and we got a drill out. And we, you know, drew the, the, the game on the board. And then I began to drill it. And then we had to go find marbles. So it was a big family thing. And we had fun with it. And we sat down and the kids were loving it. You know, we were playing games with them and grandma was there and I was there. And, and uh, uh, my son's oldest boy, Luke, said, come on, dad, play with us. And dad said, I don't play board games. And his wife, Jen, my daughter-in-law, said, we have you to thank for that, Steve. <laughs> Seriously? She goes, yeah, yeah. You're overzealous. <laughs> Your trash talk, <laughs> you know, your competitive spirit has ruined your son for board games. <laughs> he won't play them anymore. I said, seriously, is that real? And Josh says, yeah. He says, I don't deal well with bullies and intimidation. <laughs> it's funny now, but it hurt. I mean, to be called a bully, who wants to be that guy? And it just cut me to the heart, you know. And so I got back to St. Louis and I wrote him a letter. Didn't send him an email. Didn't type it. I actually hand wrote it and mailed it to him and apologized for something I'd done 30 years ago. I never thought I was being a bully. I thought I didn't use curse words. My dad used curse words. You know? <laughs> but I had a sensitive son and I was insensitive to that. When you discover a weakness, a flaw in your character or or something you wish were different but isn't different, you have two choices. You can cover up or you can come clean. When you cover up like Adam and Eve did, you know, they made for themselves fig leaves. They physically but also uh, figuratively covered up their sin. They fixed blame elsewhere. The woman that you gave me, God, you're kind of partially responsible in this thing. And Satan who tempted me, when we refuse to own it, when we rationalize it, when we excuse it, when we explain away, you know, something that's not right in us or some skeleton in our closet, when we refuse to deal with it, when we hope no one discovers it and we're not very vulnerable, not very transparent, it remains in our life. And it not only remains in our life, it it grows stronger. And we fear the possibility that it might come out that it might be discovered. But when when we come clean, when we're honest, when we admit our failure, we free ourselves from that thing that Satan is using to beat us around the head with. And you say, well, how do I do that? How do I come clean? How do do I confess? And who do I confess to? I I like the catechism on this, you know, the, the Luther Small Catechism. Uh, and the explanation that I learned as a child and I've taught for many years to other people's children as well. It's pretty good advice. It says to other people, you should confess and come clean on those things that you have done to hurt them. 
You know, that's the best way to come clean. Don't ignore it. Don't avoid them. Don't explain it. Don't rationalize and say, well, my dad did worse than that. You know, just admit your failure to them. That's the first step. And then to God, admit all of your weaknesses, all of your problems, those you know, those you don't know, and not only the sins that you've committed, but also the things that you have failed to do that you ought to have done and you later regret. Lord, you know, I just lay that out before you. And we do that as part of almost every service here. I think it's one of the great traditions that we've hung on to, you know, just to acknowledge that we are imperfect. And when we acknowledge our imperfection, then God's granting of grace and forgiveness means all the more to us. Well, what if I've done that? What if I admitted to those that I've offended? And what if I've confessed to God and I still don't find relief? I'm still troubled. Then find a safe place. Find a safe person. Maybe it's a sponsor in your Alcoholics Anonymous or your drug rehab problem. Maybe, maybe it's a sponsor. You know, maybe it's a mentor. Maybe it's a spiritual counselor. Maybe it's just a good Christian friend. And you just lay it out before them, a safe place where you know you can be honest and transparent and vulnerable and admit it to them and let them speak God's grace back into your life. Every 12-step program, I don't care what you're addicted to, whether it be alcoholism, uh, drug, overeating, sexual addiction, whatever the 12-step program is, I think it's so powerful. And, and literally, I think there are as many people in different 12-step programs every week in America as attend Christian church. And it's helped millions, and it's helping millions today. And why? Because it's based on the truth of coming clean, not covering up not excusing, not rationalizing, not explaining, but coming clean with the 12 steps. You should study them. They're good for everybody. Admit it to yourself. Hey, I'm powerless against this thing. I've tried. I cannot screw up enough resolve to get my way out of here. Admit your need for a higher power. In our case, we know who that higher power is. He's not unknown to us. He's not just some nebulous, you know, higher force. Uh, He's our heavenly father. And our access to him is granted through Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit gives us words, you know, too deep for groans. We turn it over to him. We're honest with ourselves. We conduct a moral inventory. We uh, are honest even with another person. And we're freed from that thing that haunts us. The danger of covering up is that it causes guilt. Guilt is, uh, I wish I hadn't done that or I wish I'd done that differently. Guilt is about a certain thing. But if you don't deal with guilt, it leads to shame. Shame is not just one activity, it's who you are. You know, if if I haven't dealt with my guilt, I will begin to feel badly about myself. And when you begin to feel badly about yourself, that leads to self-loathing, self-hatred, despising yourself. Somebody said, familiarity breeds contempt, and you know yourself better than anybody else. So the contempt that you have for yourself is without limit because you know that you are not the perfect person. You know you continue to do those things that you wish you were freed from. Another person said, if you had somebody treating you as badly as you treat yourself, you would have gotten rid of them a long time ago. A lot of truth in that. So get rid of that self-condemnation Self-loathing people hurt other people. Hurting people hurt people. If you see somebody bent on hurting and destruction, you can bet they have a problem in their life and it has to do with their own self-image 
They haven't found the daylight. They haven't found the grace. They haven't owned it in their life as God would have them own it. In fact, Omar Mateen, the, the man uh, who, who killed so many in Orlando in that nightclub, uh, they're still speculating about motive. We may never know. I'm, I'm sure there's different theories floating around. But a number of people in the gay community in Orlando have said he was not an infrequent. He was often seen as a participant in the Pulse nightclub himself, and he frequented homosexual social websites. Now, if that is true about him, and it's just based on uh, people who knew him, if that is true about him, and then he was uh, devoted to his Islamic faith that says gay people aren't worthy of life, can you imagine the conflict that raged in his heart? And so he dealt with it. He destroyed what he thought was an example of homosexuality run amok, and he destroyed himself as well. It destroys, it always destroys. That's how it, that's how it finds its outlet, and maybe in less dramatic ways, but it will destroy if you don't deal with your self-concept, if you don't accept the grace and the love of God, which are found in Christ Jesus. Even in regard to suicide, you would have thought we made great strides in suicide prevention, that rates would have slumped under the onslaught of antidepressants and antipsychotic drugs, but in fact, they have continued to increase because masking the pain is not the issue. Drugs can be helpful. I'm not suggesting that they aren't needed in life. Uh, there's chemical issues involved. But they will only be helpful, uh, studies show, when they are associated and used with cognitive behavior therapy, when you identify the issue and begin to deal with the issue. You know, for us, it's coming clean. When you come clean before God and before others, uh, then you are freed from the destructive power of darkness. I love the way David, uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul spoke about it because he tried and tried and tried uh, to deal with his own weaknesses and he found himself uh, unable to do it so that he would have slipped into self-loathing except for this. He said, I do not do the good I want to do, but I find myself doing the evil that I do not wish to do. Amen? Who hasn't been there? This I just keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin living in me that does it. He said, it's not me. It's the nature of sin and the power it has over me. And I am no match for sin. He developed some objectivity. Pray to God that you would do that. That you would realize it's not your weakness. It's the nature of sin. And you are no match for sin. I listen to Christian music. I'm sure you do too. And not all of it's created equal. You know, a lot of it can make me feel guilty because it speaks about, you know, I'm giving my all to Jesus when in fact I know that I hold back a lot and uh, I'm not that perfect Christian person that sometimes the songs speak about. But there are a couple out there right now that really speak to my heart and, and I turn the radio up when I hear them when they come on. One is by Casting Crowns called Beheld. I don't know if you've heard it, but you should write some notes down and you should listen to it. Find it on uh, Google if you need. Uh, it says, your world is not falling apart. It's falling into place. Stop holding on. And just be held. Stop trying to be a better Christian and let God love you. Just be held by him. Just sit in your father's lap and feel his grace and his love. Wrap his arms around you. But there's one that's even more powerful. It's either new or just new to me. It's by Mercy Me. It's called My Younger Me. And and in the song lyrics it says, If I knew then what I know now, 
condemnation would have no power. If I knew then, you know, all the times I kicked myself, all the times I regretted, all the times I saw things in me that I did not like, I would have found the daylight. Condemnation would have had no power. Dear younger me, it's not your fault. You were never meant to carry this beyond the cross. Dear younger me, you are holy. You are righteous. You are one of God's redeemed. Set apart with a brand new heart. You are free indeed. Amen. Wow, what, a, what an awesome song. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's not just theory. That's not just a great lyric. It's Bible. Romans chapter 8. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Jesus Christ, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from sin and death. Don't trouble me, Satan. I'm worse than you accuse me of. But I'm covered and forgiven in Christ Jesus. The power of coming clean brings me out of darkness into the warmth of his light. Paul, the same one who said, you know, it's sin living in me, also wrote, when I was powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Rarely would anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might dare to die. (laughs) But God didn't die for me because I cleaned up my act. God demonstrated his love for me in this way. When I was still worthless, Christ died for me. God doesn't love you if, God doesn't love you because, God just loves you because of the tender mercies of our God. And he has the power to set you free. He has the power to remove that darkness from your life. He has the power to bring you into the daylight. It starts with confession. To the Lord, to others, to a counselor perhaps, a mentor, a sponsor. It goes to vulnerability, transparency, and trust. Daily trust. Embrace the mess. And just say, I'm God's man. He's got me. And leading to obedience. But let's not get that obedience thing wrong. I'm obedient not because it pleases God. I study my Bible for behavior cues because it's good for me. My father has put obedience in the Bible because that's the best way to live, just like a parent who cares about a child and disciplines a child, not because they want to make them pay for wrong, but because they want them to move in a right path because that path is best for them. My obedience is not to make God love me more. He can't love me more than he does. Even before I accepted him, his love is everlasting. His love is complete. His love is unconditional. My obedience is for me. And it might help you out occasionally as well. But it's not for God. So happy Father's Day. No matter what kind of a father you have been, no matter what regrets you might have about being a parent, a mom or a dad, God has got your back. He has covered your shortfall. You know, there is forgiveness for you. And know too that your kids, you know, may not be scarred by life. You know, the Lord will also care for them and bring them through their trauma that you may have even caused. And no matter what kind of an earthly father you had, I hope you had a good one. But if you didn't have a good one, you have a good one in your heavenly father. He will never disappoint you. He will never spoil you, no matter how much I pray for him to spoil me all the time. He loves me too much to spoil me. He's not going to bless me beyond my ability to manage. And he will never give me bad advice. No matter what you have or haven't got on earth, No one has a better father than you. 
Happy Father's Day. Please do me a favor. Please do me a favor and and stand if you would. And I want you to just open your hands. And as you open your hands, I, I want you to see the scars. I want you to see the lifelines. I want you to see the wear and tear that life has dealt you, the blisters that have healed, the calluses that are there. And and I want you to look at that as your weaknesses, as as things that you'd like to change. You know, they're no longer baby's hands. Now you could cover them up, you could put them behind your back and you could hide them and you could not look at them anymore. And you could just pretend that everything's fine. But I prefer to embrace the truth. I prefer that you open your hands and show the reality of your situation to the Lord and just hold them up. And the things that trouble you, the things that you see in yourself, the darkness, just give it to the Lord now in a private time of confession because your problems are different than mine. Just, Lord, here, take them. I'm being vulnerable. I'm being transparent. I'm exposing myself to you. Take it, Lord. And fill me with your grace. There's a scripture from Solomon in Proverbs chapter 28 that says, He who hides his sin will not prosper. A loving father's not going to prosper you in doing wrong. He cares too much for you. But those who confess them and forsake them, these find compassion. God has compassion for you that you have no idea how complete and how extensive it is. Receive his compassion in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.